Welcome to BeastNet. You've tuned in to a special episode dedicated to the Sober Spartan. These episodes are an extension of the Facebook group, Sober Spartans. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect any policy or position of anyone but themselves. Show guests share their stories openly and honestly. Some will remain anonymous, some will share their names. Please be respectful of the privacy of those who wish to remain anonymous. Hey everybody out there in BeastNet land. Today we're going to be doing our special monthly episode about Sober Spartans. This will be airing one day before my three-year sobriety date. So hopefully I can make it that one extra day past when this airs. And uh, you guys will all celebrate with me online on June 1st. But today on the show, we've got Terry, Tatted Ninja Lamb. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his story and what led him into a life of sobriety. Hey, Terry, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Just uh, staying positive, staying strong with uh, with all the unknown that we're dealing with. Yeah, it's definitely been a real tough time. Everybody uh, trying to keep sober and and deal with COVID at the same time. Um, And in a lot of cases, having their gyms closed, which a lot of us use physical exertion as an outlet for our our addictions. Um, Listeners, I don't believe I've ever heard from you on this show. Can you give us a little synopsis of who you are? Um, yeah, so my name's Terry Lamb. Um, I worked for Spartan Race for a while, and that's kind of what, what launched me into the obstacle course racing community and forum. And uh, I'm 31 years old. I now live in Idaho. I've got three kids, and I just fell in love with obstacle course racing and Ninja Warrior, and now I'm just a uh, an obstacle elite, and I just go around trying to inspire everybody to take themselves to another level. So a little more background, uh, uh... Sorry, I was going to say a little more background. Um, when you got into to working for Spartan and running OCR, how did that how did that affect you and your your life in general at that time? You know, a year before I got clean um, and made the life the life choices that I did. Um, when I first got clean, the first thing that I went to was running. So I wanted to quit smoking cigarettes, and running made me not want a cigarette. So I started by running literally like twenty five yards from my mom's back door to her mailbox and then back. And I would sprint when I wanted a cigarette and ended up being like twice an hour. And then that wasn't enough. And she lives out in the country. Uh, it's like one mile block. So then I started, I ended up running all the way around the block, which is like four miles. And I just kept running and just kept running and just kept running. And um, then I was sitting around with some friends of mine from um, our local recovery group and uh, the Conor McGregor fight was on the original Nate Diaz Conor McGregor fight, the very first one. And uh, a commercial came on for the Boise Idaho Spartan Race, and I was like, "Dude, I could do that, and I would do good." But I'd never run any type of like race before, so I went and did it, and I got like 18th place in open. Um, but I would have been 31st in elite, I think, and I'd never run anything. I didn't fail any obstacles, and I was like, "You know what? This is my jam." Like. I'm above average. I don't even know what I'm doing out here. Never thrown a spear. I'm allergic to burpees. And, you know, I just uh, I just stayed with it and stayed consistent. And then I, you know, it's really cool uh, where you find yourself in recovery when you really invest in yourself and you truly start to love yourself again. I was having a conversation with the lady and she said, are you happy? I was, I was kind of unhappy about the job I was working. She said, are you happy at your job? And I said, no. 
not really. And she said, well, why do you still work there? She said, you're going to end up like me. You're going to end up 50 years old and wishing you would have got out of that job and did what you loved. You're still young. The next morning, I went into the job I had, and I quit. I said, hey, I'm not happy here. And she said, okay, do you want to put in your two weeks? And I said, no, no, not really. I I just don't want to go back to work. I'm going to go chase my dream. And uh, I packed up everything that I needed to be gone for like two months, and I drove my little car to Lake Tahoe, California, slept in my car for five days, um, volunteered for eight. The build crew from Spartan Race found out I was sleeping in my car, and they said, dude, you're volunteering every day and you're sleeping in your car. Like, we got pull-out bed. You can't sleep in your car anymore. Come on. And they, they put me up in a hotel room. Uh, I took a job offer that same week and was at another race like four weeks later. And it's just kind of been history since. I just stayed tight with the family, the people, the connections. And, you know, I fell in love with the camaraderie that you get from the people. It reminds me a lot of, of the strong recovery environment that we get when we support one another. And I just continued my journey. That's amazing. You talk about kind of being hired on the spot there. I've heard that so many times with the people at Spartan where, you know, there's a couple of weeks ago when, when Joe hosted the first Zoom meeting that he did and, and one of the guys said, I can do a better job at whatever it was. And Joe said, fine, put your money where your mouth is, you're hired. And, uh, and that's just kind of the Spartan, you know, the Cavalier, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it as a team and we're going to do it great um, mentality. And I think that fits so well into into sobriety and the life of recovery because you know aside from the race giving out free beers at the end um everything else that goes into the race between the build teams the volunteers and everything just falls right in with that yeah i couldn't agree more it was so easy for me to relate overcoming obstacles to overcome the obstacles in my life that it just it just made sense and it's going to continues to like when you fail you get up you do it again you continue pushing training working educating whatever you need to to be successful in life it translates the same way onto the race course and it and it's all obstacle course racing i mean i do primarily like i do a lot more short course ninja warrior speed stuff um i'd like to go do some of the like olympic style and military style short course speed where you got to do heavy carry short sprints you know you're done in a minute and a half but it's just full-blown sprints you can't hit the beat or you'll fall you'll fill an obstacle so i like to do that really edgy fast, like explosive, like the flash, just what just flew by. And, you know, ironically, that's how I lived when I was using, except I did it very unhealthily. And so I'm able to translate that energy now into something that's more relatable and more passionate and healthy. And to be able to do that so easily, it was just a no-brainer for me. Like, hey, I belong in obstacle course racing and I can reach other people. I can talk, I can share, I can motivate, I can inspire. You know, it's just perfect fit. Yeah, I've seen on your, your Facebook uh, before the COVIDs hit, uh, you were doing some speaking at local schools and uh, and just getting out there and telling your, your story. Because when you see this this little guy covered in tattoos coming in, you don't know what to expect. And, and they always try to, to judge a book by its cover and, and watching the, the stories of you. Um, yeah, I've watched some of the videos that you posted at the schools and stuff. And just it's amazing how those kids connect with you. Yeah, thank you. I, I can't agree more. You know what? When I was younger growing up, I lived in an ice cream truck because my dad was an addict when I was a kid. Uh, my mom and my dad were, were both addicts. And I lived in an ice cream truck uh, from when I was one till I was like three. And then I lived in a trailer from when I was three till I was like eight in my grandparents' backyard. So we didn't really have any structure. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a role model. I didn't have a father figure. And I know that 
like studies show the amount of kids that will get in trouble with addiction or that will die from addiction because they don't have a father figure or mentor mentor or structure or somewhere to go. And so where I live in Burley, Idaho, it's a pretty small town. It's population 10,000. So it's not real big. I opened a gym. It's called the Ninja Sanctuary so that the kids could come here and have something to do. And I don't charge like I did the entire first year completely pro bono free. Um, just all growing it, building it off of my salary, working for Spartan and some side jobs and stuff that I did. And then now my schedule is so busy that I, I do a lot of adult personal training, different stuff, but still two nights a week I have open gym for kids uh, to come in free of charts. And I still, if someone calls me and says, hey, I want to bring my kids, we don't have any money, single mom, um, single dad, or even just loving family together as a group as a whole, um, we don't discriminate. I still bring them in and I'll still spend an hour with them working out, showing them how to do ninja, showing them to overcome obstacles that anything is an obstacle. It's the approach that they take that makes it become an obstacle and that those challenges need to be faced head on. I just wish that I could go back in a sense and I wish I had the mindset I do now, you know, prior because like many addicts, I think I look back and I'm like, man, I could have done so much more. You know, I didn't untap my potential. I was limiting myself, but you know, there's a time and place and that's why I'm where I'm at. So I, I can't complain. Yeah, that's it. I personally have noticed uh, listening to your story there where we talk about generational addiction. And, uh, you know, for myself, once I, I came out as sober to my family, amazingly, I had just cousins and aunts and uncles just all over the country telling me you know, how proud they were because they're all sober because they were all uh, alcoholics or addicts also. And it's amazing how that kind of, it's just been a generational thing that we're, we're finally starting to break that habit uh, in this current generation. Yeah. I, I want to make it cool to be clean. And that's kind of the goal I have. You know, I, I started this uh, Tata Ninja project, which is a nonprofit uh, program. I haven't, because of this uh, current coronavirus thing, I haven't fully launched because I kind of have a setback now. Um, but our mission is to empower people through obstacle course racing to overcome life's challenges. And then our core values are race, resilience, accessibility, courage, and encouraging future leaders. And the plan was to just take this obstacle course that I built, like the one you saw the video of, and go around from high school to high school and, like, go on a tour and go put these kids through physical obstacles. Like, I'll call them out of the crowd. Like, you went through something tough this week. Let them share a little bit. And if it's, you know, one that, that is, one of the top 10, the toughest ones, I pull them out of the crowd down here onto the course so they can come overcome obstacles right there. And the emotion and the empowerment that you get and you give them is second to none. It's just an amazing thing. And the other kids see like, hey, it costs $0 to be a decent human being. Like, just do the next right thing. Like, help your neighbor, you know. And I just, it's, I'm just bummed because I had like, I spent quite a bit of money getting this course already and building a truck rack and like getting stuff set up to, to go knock this out of the park. And then now we're kind of at a standstill, but you know, we still have the gym here. We're, we're still working. Uh, I still do some motivational speaking via like Skype and zoom meetings. So it's still processing. Uh, it's good that you're still able to get the message out there. It'll be even better in the fall, hopefully when schools start back up and you'll be able to get the road show out there and, and really spread the message. Um, going back a little bit, uh, you've been clean now for how long? Uh, 52 months, so almost four and a half years. That is just an amazing number. When I, when I first got sober, I was fighting to make it a day. Um, 
then I was fighting to make it a week. And actually, I should say I was fighting to make it a minute. Uh, when I first when I first was introduced to sobriety, my sponsor gave me a book called Living Sober, and, and it just sat there. And it basically each page had a a story or something to take your mind off of it. And at the end of the page, it's like, hey, you just made it another five minutes sober. And it was just such an amazing beginning to the journey. Um, how was it for you when you first started? You know, so I'll, I'll take it back just to make more sense of a little bit. When I was 18, um, I got in a really bad car accident. And I wasn't sober when I got in a car accident. I, uh, I broke my face, broke my neck, broke my back, like blind in one eye. I was told I'd be in a wheelchair at 26. Like, you're not going to be able to do anything you normally do. And I got worse after that accident. And the pity party, like the poor me, the addict is what I call it. It's like the, the devil and the angel you have on your shoulder that people talk about. Mine was the little addict. Like, he basically told me to go around being a jerk and, and not to appreciate anyone. And I still continue to use for um, like nine years, almost 10 years after that. And I just got tired of living miserably. I was living in Riverside, California at the time, living with a buddy, and we just partied like every night. And so I was like, I'm going to move to Idaho to live with my mom, a small town, you know, I'll stay out of trouble. I won't go to bars and blah, blah, blah. And I hadn't lived with my mom in 15 years. And when I moved here to live with her, there was more emotion and like, not necessarily like arguments, but little petty stuff that came up and I started drinking again. And then I was hiding it. So I was closet drinking and I worked tonight. So like I would stay at work late because I knew if I got up at 730, I could hit the liquor store on the way home. And mind you, we live in such a small town, it's, it's two miles from one end of town to the other, and that's the main street. There's nothing else. Like, it's that small. And I still would find a means or a way, and I ended up getting um, a DUI, uh, an excessive DUI, and then before I was even sentenced for the first one, I got a second one. And when that all happened, I went to court. They put me in jail for a weekend, and I had to do, like, three more weekends, and I was just done. Like, I was like, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was just done. And I went into the judge, and I said, hey, will you count my three weekends of jail if I go to a rehab? Because the state had told me they will, they'll put me to rehab. And uh, I remember I was at work, and I told them, hey, I have to bring my phone with me today. I'm expecting a phone call. And my boss was kind of like, okay. And I got a phone call from the guy that runs the rehab, and he told me, yeah, we'll accept you. We got a bed. Uh, how quick can you get up here? And I, I said, let me call you back. And I walked into the facility manager's office and I said, hey, I have, a, I have an opportunity here to change my life. And they didn't know. They knew I got a DUI. They didn't know I had a problem because alcohol is so socially acceptable that that's why I justified it even. You know, it's okay. It's okay to drink. They sell it. It's legal. And, and uh, I told him and he said, wow. He said, well, it takes a lot of balls just to walk in here. And he said, we'll send you on FMLE, um, FMLA. So family leave. He said, you'll get paid while you're there and you know, good luck. And I went for, I went to a 90 day program for 62 days. And then they told me, why are you here? And I said, I need to experience this. I need to go through this. And he said, but you know, you know what you don't need to do. So why are you still here? And I said, I don't know. Like I haven't been told I'm cured, I guess. And that, and just that like goes to show even early in my recovery, I was still sick, if that makes sense to you. Like, I still thought, like, they were going to tell me, oh, go home, you're cured. Like, there's no cure, as you know. You know, it's the behaviors, the mannerisms. So I, I came home, and then I did an, an outpatient program for another three or four months, which was like four nights a week. 
Um, he was four nights a week, and then I had to go to so many AA or NA meetings as well. And um, I just ran with recovery at that point, but I still wasn't internalizing enough. Like, I didn't get a sponsor. I wasn't working steps. I was kind of not following the path like you're supposed to. And I would say probably, like, right, right at a year in, I met a girl who was still actively using, which is now my girlfriend and my the mother of my son, and she needed help. She wanted to go to meetings and stuff, and I took her to a meeting, and I started kind of trying to help her get clean. And that was when it clicked in my head, like, hey, you need a sponsor. You need someone to, to ride you, to keep you, to hold you accountable. Because I was kind of doing that to her, but I wasn't having it done to me. And I realized, like, you're not working the steps. You're not doing the process like these people with 30, 40, 50 years clean. You're just kind of trying to run your own program, and it doesn't work that way. And so I, I got a book. I started doing the steps. I started reading the daily meditation. I started doing what people that I looked up to with, you know, 20, 30 years of clean time were doing and, and listening to their stories, their experience, their strength, their hope. And I started internalizing some change. I started trying to better myself. I started trying to just do the next right thing every time I was given the opportunity. And, you know, I've come, in my opinion, I mean, people tell me too, but like, you know, I've come full 360 since then because I don't let as much bother me. I don't get as angry. I'm not as mean. I don't have as much anxiety. I really have learned to kind of let things go that are out of my control. And, you know, memorizing the serenity prayer, following the lead of people who have been through it already, rather than thinking that I got it all figured out. You know, that's a, that's a character defect of mine that I really ignored for like my first year of recovery. And I think that it's so important. And I hope someone listening hears this too. Like it only works if you work it. Like there's a reason why there's a process. There's a reason why people have 50 years clean and 40 years clean and 30 years clean. And, and a lot of their friends didn't make it. A lot of, of people relapse and don't make it. And I hope anyone listening to during this, this coronavirus and during these times, like you don't have to go use, that's not going to fix anything. It's not going to make it better. It's not going to change anything. Like when you're struggling, just reach out. There's a whole bunch of us. I'm sure you'd say the same that we willing to get on the phone with somebody like, Hey, what's up, man? You all right? You want to go get a cup of coffee? Like, it'll be okay. I'll, I'll share some of my time of my 24 hours in a day with you. It's all right. You know, and I like just coming on here with you. I'm just so grateful to be where I'm at in my life that, you know, it's not all about materials and money and me. And just now I'm, I'm at a place where I want to see other people do well. Yeah. One of the things about uh, the Silver Spartans podcast and, and Facebook group and the Survivors Facebook group um, is that we're all here for each other. If anybody needs anything, you know, you can text me, email me, Facebook message me. Um, same with Amanda and uh, and Jessica, the the leaders of the the Facebook group for the Silver Spartans, and oddly enough, Amanda is one of the leaders of my my group, the Survivors. Um, and it sounds like you're the same thing. Here's my my info. Get a hold of me if you need help. So, yeah, I mean, it's just so simple. Like you know, you can't put a, a value on human life, but yet there's a value on our time all the time. And, and it's, I think it's unknowingly sometimes like we got to work, we got to make money. Like, yes. But when somebody's life's at risk, like, do you take the time? So I, I have a check engine light. You've seen, like I have tattoos on, you know, my sideburns, my head. I got the predator on the back of my head. I have living clean on the side of my head. I have my knuckles, my hands, everything. But one of my most valued tattoos is I have a check engine light on my forehead. And when I go to like schools and when I go see these kids, they're just like, whoa, like, look at this dude has a check engine light. Like, 
what's wrong with him? And I kind of laugh because I'm like, that is the best conversation conversation piece that I've ever that I have ever. Because if your check engine light comes on in your car, you might go down to O'Reilly and have it have it ran, see what it is. Oh, it's just an O2 sensor. I'm going to leave it off. But when we walk by somebody in the store, or when you see somebody posting out of how they normally act, like do you take that little bit of time? And it's right back to like time. Time is money. Time is this. Time is that. Like we all have the same 24 hours in a day. Do we all have the same life expectancy? No, of course not. But it takes 40 seconds of your life to change somebody's life. So when I speak, I share this story with people how I go into Walmart and I need to buy a vacuum cleaner. And I see Carl in the home goods section. I say, hey, Carl, you know, I'm looking at this vacuum. It's not on the shelf. It was in the ad. This is the one I want. And he kind of moseys over like Eeyore, you know. Yeah, let me see. Let me scan it. Yep. Yeah, it says we have two in the back. I tell him, right on, Carl, can you check for me, buddy? And he goes, yeah, yeah, let me go check. He comes back out. He gives me my vacuum. You know, and I get this vibe from him, like, man, he's not in a happy place right now. And I think a lot of people feel that with people but don't say anything. Well, I tell him, hey, Carl, you did a hell of a job, dude. You got me the vacuum I needed. You got me the price off the Internet. You're the man. Like, you're good at your job. You helped me a lot today, and I hope hope you value that. For all I know, he has a bottle of liquor and a loaded gun on his nightstand, and he's ready to go home and throw in the towel. And it took 40 seconds of my life to tell him, you matter, you did a damn good job, and I hope you keep doing a damn good job. And he goes home and puts the liquor away, puts the gun away, and says, you know what? I am worth something, and I can do a good job. 40 seconds to turn someone's check engine light off of our life. But how often does that happen, you know? And so it's one of the things that I pride myself on is, is just telling everybody, like, just take the extra second. Just take the extra second. It's so simple and can literally save a life. It, it is. And, and unfortunately, there's so many people out there that are just worried about themselves. And they never take that, that five minutes to, to turn off somebody's check engine light and help them out. Yeah, I wish more people would do that. You know, I'm I'm right there with it. And I don't mean to go on about, like, the motivational thing all the time, too, but, like, I feel like it just helps people to realize, like, there's so much value in all of us. And people, especially people who are not clean, I feel like a lot of people who drink a lot deep down inside want to be clean or wish they could get clean. And I say that because a lot of people message me and ask me how but then don't stick to it. And then a month or two later, they'll ask me again and they kind of don't figure it out. And so I think from the outside looking in, people still think it's about the drugs and the alcohol and not so much the scars or the issues or the mannerisms or the things that are really wrong with us. And and you know that, you know, working with the sponsor and stuff, like it's not all about the substances. It's about me trying to escape the reality. Well, what happens if you're running on a trail in a Spartan race off in La La Land, not paying attention, like you're going to crash and burn. You know, it's the, it's the same thing to me. You have to focus and you have to do your best to focus, but just do it one day at a time, one race at a time, one obstacle at a time, one step at a time, one footstep at a time, whatever it takes to keep going. You know, that's why I, I flocked and bonded with obstacle race course racing so well, because you see, Big, small, yellow, purple, black, green. Nobody cares when you're on the Spartan course. Nobody cares about any of that that we see on the media right now. It doesn't. There's no race, no color, nothing. You see some lady get on a knee and help some guy over the wall. Then he walks back on the wall or back around the wall. He gets down on one knee, and then she gets over the wall. Then they give muddy high fives and hugs, and they, they stumble on. 
And so that camaraderie and just that, that willingness and ability, like it's exactly how I felt in the unknown when I, when I got clean. Like it's the same thing. Every race is a little bit different. You don't know what to expect. It's the same thing when you're clean all the time. You know, it's, I just had never seen anything like it. I, I need to write a book about it. I keep saying I'm going to try, but then I, my addict comes back out and I'm like squirrel and I get distracted and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now that that actually probably make for a good book. Uh, you know, life is a life transitions into sobriety with OCR. Um, you know, a lot of people think that the drugs and the alcohol are the problem. And realistically, it, it's more our, mental processing capability that's the problem and that's like you said that's the outlet that's what the the drugs and the alcohol are is the outlet and we're broken and that's why we need to keep using that outlet and it's it's a process of of self-reflection and learning that creates sobriety not just stopping drinking um i worked with some people that they quit drinking and then nobody wanted to be around them because it turned into serious assholes because they weren't working the steps and they weren't bettering themselves so, I mean, they, they quit drinking, they were sober, but they were angry, um, uh, what do we call them? Dry drunks, just they're, they're oh, jerks. Oh, yeah. And, and it wasn't, you know, one of them, uh, I'm pretty sure he went back out, he stopped talking. But uh, another one, you know, as soon as we actually got him to sit down and, and kind of buy into the program itself, it made a huge difference in the way he acted because, you know, not drinking is one thing. Being sober and being happy about being sober, that's a completely different thing. And, you know, myself, I'm so glad I found it because, you know, I had tried to stop drinking time and time again. And and when I would stop drinking, my wife would almost want to divorce me more than when I was drinking because I became a dry drunk. And And once I learned that the problem was so much bigger than just the alcohol, it was just the, the wiring in my head, some of the genetic predisposition predispositions that I had going on. And, and I had to, to change a lot of things about my life and Spartan fit right in there for me because it was a great you know, getting out the physical exertion, the instant gratification of finishing a, an obstacle. Like you were saying for the kids, you know, take them out and push them through the hardest obstacle in their life and being a physical one. And the, the joy you get from that is just amazing. Yeah. It's truly remarkable how, how easy it is to transition what you do on the course to what you do in life. And, and it doesn't always relate, you know, to sobriety and recovery, but for those of us that were addicts or that admit we were addicts and then we have problems, I think it does. What's really cool to me is the simplicity that you get and the ease of humility in your life when you stay sober. Like it used to be, you know, you had to keep that edge. You had to keep that to me. And, and I share this with kids in schools. I share this with everybody because I laugh about it so much when I see people that do it. I see these people who are so stuck on being hard. And what I mean is like that street cred, like, you know, I got to be hard. I got to be tough. Like, what are you looking at? Like, I can't have emotions. But when it comes down to it, like you meet this kid and he's like, well, I look up to my uncle and my uncle shoots people and my uncle fights people and my uncle does this and he does that. But if you put the uncle that he's looking up to in the boxing ring with a disciplined boxer, he'll lose. When you put the uncle at a shooting range with a disciplined firearms instructor, he's going to lose. It's not that discipline that he, that he doesn't have. He doesn't have the discipline to be really good at it. He's just careless and reckless. And I look at that and how I applied some of that to my life and thought that was important. And then now, you know, after having kids and after being where I'm at now, I see how much time and money was wasted on living this 
facade that I thought meant anything anyway. Like when you go to jail, you go to jail alone. When they put you in a coffin, they put you in the coffin alone every time. And that's what I tell people. Like you're so worried about what other people think, but they don't keep you warm at night. They're not going to heat up your soup when you're sick. Like you think these people in your addiction that are your friends care so much, but 99% of people I've ever met who have gotten clean and stayed clean don't have the same friends anymore. And I'm not saying that everyone that, that drinks or goes out and has fun is a bad person by any means. Cause I do know people that have some drinks and have some fun and they're, you know, I just call them normies. I'm like, good for you. You know, I, I couldn't do it. That's not my personality. It's not how I was. But most of the time, the people you thought cared about you when you were heavy into your addiction don't care until you have something to offer them again. So we live in this like vicious little web of lies, but it's self-inflicted web of lies. Like it's Charlotte's web, but you're Charlotte. And we just, to me at least, definitely for me, like I was just stuck in pretending to be everything I wasn't. And it was like another full-time job. 24 hours a day. Now I cry. If a song comes on in the car and I get emotional or something, it reminds me of memories. I don't give a crap. I'll cry. I don't care if the truck driver next to me is like, what is this little girl doing crying? Like, <laughs> I'm living. I feel good. That felt good to get that out. I don't have to prove to anybody anything anymore. I know what I do. I know that there's food for my family. I know that I meet and greet people who genuinely have a love and respect for me. And I'm okay with with the flaws in myself, in my body, in my lifestyle, in, and making mistakes. Like it's okay to make mistakes. And just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that comes back to the saying, and I'm sure you heard it is, uh, is it easy? No, but it's pretty simple. And I, I say that all the time. I mean, is it easy? No, but it's pretty simple. It, I don't know how else to say it. You know, I, yeah. Yeah, no, it, that, that is exactly it. I mean, you're, you're comfortable with who you are and you're confident in what you're doing and, and you got there because you followed some very simple steps. I mean, they're, they're not easy steps, but they're very simple. Um, they're almost, uh, almost things that you say would be common sense. Just took somebody taking a little bit of time to write them down and, uh, and put them into action. Yeah. And having somebody, you know, that you confide in or trust you know, enough that you can tell them all that stuff. Like, I don't know about you. Like when you were in your addiction, did you share intimate things? Like I could share anything intimate of my life right now on this, um, on this, in this interview. Like, I don't care. I'll share it with everybody. Like I, I have nothing to hide, but I feel like in our addiction, and I think you might have a little story on it too. Like, did you share those type of intimate feelings or emotions with anybody, even your significant other? when you were like heavy in your active addiction. Cause I feel like we say we do or did so many people, but we never really told anybody how we felt. Or if we did, it was probably not how we really felt, but a deflecting way of it to not show that we're weak or soft or have emotion. My uh, sponsor and I use a great analogy. We call it uh, the Lord of the Rings analogy, um, Gollum and Schmeagel, because both my sponsor and myself, we, we were, uh, we, we hit it. So we would always hide the precious. And, and if you remember in, uh, in Lord of the Rings, you know, Gollum and Schmeagel, that's how they acted was they're always hiding it and they're craving it and having to have it. And, you know, he, I've heard stories where, you know, the guy would take the, and fire up the lawnmower and hear a glass break because it's up. Oh, I forgot there was a bottle in there, you know, stuff like that. And then that's, that was kind of how mine was. And when it came to sharing emotions, you know, even three years later, I'm still not the, the best at sharing emotions with my wife, but I'm a whole lot better than I was. 
Yeah, when when I quit drinking, she was at the point she had no clue who I was, no clue what I was doing, no clue anything about me. And and now, you know, we talk for hours a day instead of just me coming home and and having a beer is all she'd think I'd be having. And you know, every time I got up, I'd go to the closet and drink some more Everclear. And for some reason, one beer would always have me passed out on the floor. Yeah, it just you know, it, I think it's awesome too that when you are comfortable enough to relate to somebody, like I can relate to that exactly what you just said, because that's how I was. I was living with my mom at the time though, but that's exactly how I did it was I'm just going to have one beer and then I'd sneak off and just, and just, it's just so much work and so much insanity. Like, why do you need to hide that? Like, why are you hiding? Why are you burdening yourself and like making all this so much worse on yourself? Like I feel so much healthier and happier and just relieved now. And I see people that, that still hide that. And I'm like, man, you guys, like, you don't have to live this way, you know, and, and you want to help them, you know, but they got to want to help themselves. And, and it circles right back to that. You know, you can lead a horse to water. No matter how hard you beat it, it's still made a drink. <laughs> exactly it. Yeah. It's just, you know. So let's go back to OCR. I mean, we're on this Spartan, um, Spartan thing. So I, I was telling you, I do a lot of the short course, like American Ninja Warrior style, real short sprint. And then uh, up till this, Iris came, I was setting up the Spartan Dash courses, which are the ones we would do at, like, the Arnold Fitness Expo, uh, the L.A. Fair, kind of like a marketing tool to get people to try the course and get a feel for it, and then, you know, they could buy a race there at a discounted price and then go race, and I would always set, like, the fastest time on that course, like, every time. Of course, it wouldn't count because I worked, worked there, but I would always set the fastest, and then I started getting into these ninja speed courses where you do... You know, it's usually about 50 to 70 yards, and there's six, eight obstacles, sometimes 10, 12 obstacles, but you do the entire thing in, like, 13 seconds, and it's just don't miss the beat. Like, jump, swing, boom, 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 boom. And, uh, and I just fell in love with that adrenaline that you get. Like, by the time you're out of breath, you're done. Like, it already, you're complete. You've already pressed the buzzer, and it's like, whew. Okay, what, how fast did I go? Like, what happened? You don't even remember exactly what route you took sometimes because you did it so quick and uh like i said that translated to me into kind of how i was in my addiction so being able to transfer that to you know that's my personality like that's you know that's like almost core values of mine unfortunately and like character defects that it's hard to change that want to go fast attitude like the internalizing it like i work a lot on it with my breathing and, and you know meditation and trying to do it but it's still there. So for me to kind of feed that beast, I now use these short sprint speed courses and I still enjoy the suck fest of a beast, you know, now and again too, and hiking uphill for three miles. That's always fun. Yeah. I think my, my favorite course for that would be uh, Montana where somehow you go uphill for 19 miles and you end up at the same starting point. You know, so, Someone told me that before I ran it, and I didn't believe him, but I, I totally agree now because I remember going uphill a lot, but I never remember coming downhill. And then all of a sudden, you do this ridiculous 230-yard sagging barbed wire crawl, and then you're <laughs> back at the finish line, and it's like, dude, what just happened? Like, what just happened? Like, the nothing that I planned on doing at the start line happened at all that whole race in Montana. I was cramping at the bucket carry. It was horrible. And... uh you know, they have the water crossing there, too, where it's cold. It's just so beautiful when you're out there on course, especially in Montana, where you want to complain, but you really can't because you're out. There's other people, the energy. I love those uh, those scenic 
off the grid ones. You know, I like Tahoe too. It's pretty, but I like like Montana where it's off the grid, up in the woods. Like there's deer, there's elk, there's animals. You know, I really enjoyed that race. What's your favorite race and memory, if I can ask you, since we're, you know, we're on here anyway, um, of a race? And then I will share one of mine with you after. So the the most memorable, biggest uh, memory for me in, in obstacle course racing, um, it has to actually do with my daughter. Uh, my daughter's 16 now, and... And my brother-in-law and I took up obstacle course racing about the same time. I think I maybe had one more year on him. Um, but this last year was the first time that he he got a, a Spartan trifecta. So in the spring last year, we did the, the Seattle Super and the Seattle Sprint. And, you know, it was 30 miles an hour winds with 40 degrees out, 200 plus people, you know, quit or DNF'd due to hypothermia. So we did those two races. And then we came back in the fall to do his beast. I'd already gotten my trifecta in Montana. And you know, that was a huge event for me. Um, that was my first trifecta. Um, I didn't get personally into Spartan until about two years ago. I was just doing the warrior dashes and rugged maniacs and, and the, the fun ones. But I got into Spartan about two years ago. So last year I got my first trifecta. But the, the biggest memory to me was out on the course in Seattle last fall. And my brother-in-law, he's, he's getting his butt kicked and, and, and I'm kind of getting my butt kicked. We're out there pushing for our best times, just, just pushing through it. And, you know, Seattle is a pretty easy course. It's a very flat course. It's got a couple of little hill climbs and stuff, but, uh, all day long, you know, we're out there, I think six hours on the, on the beast. And, and we start coming down, doing the last sandbag carry and coming into the, the end there. and. I'd kind of sent a text to my daughter that, hey, we're coming up soon. And she went over. She'd been volunteering with Spartan all day long, and she'd become friends with with one of the staff members. And she was like, hey, my, my dad and my, my uncle are coming down, and you know, this is my uncle's first trifecta. And they're like, no, you're getting out here. You're putting the medals on them. And so she's out there standing there putting medals on people waiting for us. And you know, we come around the corner, and and there she is. And as we're crossing the line, you know, my, my brother-in-law is just sitting there starting to ball. Cause it's just, it had been such a culmination of events, you know, going from his first rugged maniac where he landed on his head and pretty much knocked himself silly for most of that race and, and struggling through the, the Seattle suck in this, in the spring. And then we, we get there to that. And, and that memory with, with my daughter pinning me and pinning him with our medals, um, yeah, that's something that I'm going to hold on to, um, forever because that just, that can only happen once and it did happen once and it happened in such a perfect way. So that, that's kind of my, my biggest favorite memory, um, to date. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. That's one of the things that I love about it too. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had volunteers when I was out there built through running my zone and someone had family on course and we're like, yeah, go run with them or go, you know, go catch up with them for a minute, take a break. And, and we cover their, you know, the water station or the obstacle they're at and let them kind of, you know, to build the memories that you get when you're out there. I think that's one of the big things that a lot of these staff members do pride themselves on is trying to give the racers the best experience possible and let them, you know, help each other too. And, and that includes family. Yeah, that was uh, one heck of a thing. Um, when I got my, my trifecta, my first one in Montana, um, that was a real tough course for me. I was out there with uh, Jody Van Ingwigen, Van Ingwen, 
I can never pronounce her last name, but uh, close friend. And and we're out there. She's wearing a bear bell because we know we're not going to be the fastest. And there had been bears spotted on course. But we went out and we did that one together. And there there was one part in the in the race where we had a couple other people with us. And one of the people was like, "Man, I'm looking at the map. I can." If we just go straight here and, and avoid this section of course, we can we can get off course faster. Because I was out there, I was I was personally close to delirious. I just changed medicines on a blood pressure medicine, and I was just completely dehydrated. Probably shouldn't have been on course, and so I started to buy into the idea of of bypassing part of the course. And and Jody just kind of took my hand and said, "You're not going that way. You're going to get caught. You're going to get kicked out, and you're going to lose your trifecta. We're going the right way." And she held me straight to the course and, you know, it ended up being a, God, we were probably out there good 11 hours. Cause I think it was just getting dark oh, when we finished and, oh, man. And, and, you know, we got to, uh, what was the last rig there? I think it was just, uh, it wasn't twister, but it was another, you know, hanging one, whether it was monkey bars or whatever. And, and I didn't even, I was just kind of stumbling at that point. I couldn't even even try to get onto the the stand and jump up there to grab anything. And and she's like, "Nope, you're just going to keep going, keep swimming, keep going." You know, and and we got me to to finish that course. But as as rough as that was for me personally and the way it was on my body, um, you know, I'll remember that course. But that'll probably never be one of the the top ones that year <laughs> for my experiences. My uh, my favorite experience. I think would be, um, I think it was Tahoe 18 when they had the double sandbag carry way up at the top. Um, it might've been, it might've been last year. I don't remember. No, it was 18. It wasn't last year. And, uh, I had to, or I, I qualified for age group. So I left at 815, I think just behind elite female. And that first climb at Tahoe is just, you know, straight uphill. Like it's like 2,600 foot elevation game i passed like almost all the female like probably a third of the men's elite in that first climb and so i was cooking i was like dude i'm on fire like i remember tracking later i was only like seven minutes behind killian time and i was like dude like yes and i got to the swim and the swim was okay i made it through the swim it was good i went to the bucket cherry i was all right but then i got up to the dunk wall and i went through the dunk wall I got out to scream, like to yell, like tell everybody, like "woo, let's go!" And when I got the dunk wall, like I remember when I jumped in, there was just a little thin layer of ice, like I broke a little ice. And I got out the other side, and there was just people standing there shivering and like laying down. And I was like, "Oh man!" And I went to yell, but no, nothing would come out. Like I just opened my mouth, and it nothing worked. And I just took off running, and I went up the slip wall, and I was running. It came around into like spear throw, and then twister. And then that double sandbag carry, and I was running, and it was so cold. I was so cold that I was running off the trail in the high weeds because there was a cloud that was, like, casting a shadow, and I wanted to be in the sun. So, like, that little bit of sun made enough enough difference for me to run 15 feet over in the bushes to stay in the sun because it was warming my body. And I didn't bring any kind of gear. I didn't bring anything. I was like, I'm just going to smoke through this course. I'll get my gear after. And I got to the double sandbag carry, and I physically was shivering so bad this was when they pulled, like you said earlier, like there's like 20% DNF or something. Everybody that they shut down the dunk wall, everyone that went through the dunk wall um, up to like, I think like five minutes after I went through it, they shut it down because they were escorting so many people off. I was shivering so bad that I would put the 170 pound sandbag on my neck and I would pick up the pancake one and I would just tip over. 
because I was just shivering. I couldn't get my body to move. And I saw one of my buddies, and, and he knows I worked for him. And he goes, Terry, what are you doing, dude? Like, are you serious? And I was like, dude, I can't do it. Like, I, I watch, and I try to do it again. And he goes, dude, I'm going to take you down the mountain. Like, get in the truck. And I just dropped both my sandbags, probably like 15 feet from the sandbag bin, and just took off running down the mountain because I knew he wasn't going to chase me. But I didn't complete the sandbag. And I got to the bottom. Um, I had warmed up by then. I got back down into the where, like, the condos are down there, right through Olympus. And I was hitting A-frame, and my girlfriend was there. And uh, she was like, she was like, Terry, Terry, Terry. You know, she's filming me, and I'm climbing up the carbon, and I'm like, I DNF, I DNF. Like, I'm going to quit. And when the words DNF came out of my mouth, and then I'm going to quit, like, something switched in my head. And, like, I climbed down the other side, and she was standing there, and I got some chews from her because that was my game plan. Like, give me some chews when I see you. And I was chewing them real quick, and she goes, what do you mean you DNF? You're going to quit. And I just looked at her and I was like, I don't know. I'm delirious. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll see you in an hour. And I took off and I finished the rest of the race. But um, when I got done, I was so angry at myself that I couldn't complete that sandbag carry or I didn't complete it. Um, then I was like, I don't even deserve a medal like that. At all. I went over and I talked to Hobie Call. I talked to Faye Stenning um, and I talked to Ryan Kent and they were like, dude, you modified your course to finish. Like, they're like half the people that went through the water got like you got pros from all over the world that had to get DNF. You got drove down the mountain like you modified and finished. And to this day, like I still journal about how in recovery you stay in your lane, you work your recovery, and when you race, you run your own race. So many people think that you have to go out and do every obstacle. You have to do it perfect. Like yeah, you pay your thirty burpees. Like it sucks, but it's your race. It's your victory. It's your finish. And so it stuck with me so hard because I was so demoralized, like, that I wanted to quit when I got down there until I heard myself say, like, you're going to quit. And then I was like, wait, 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 what'd you just say? Like, no, you're not quitting. But still to this day, like, I have the metal hanging. I'm in my office. I can see it. And it's like, ah, like, I didn't earn it. But I did finish the race that so many other people couldn't even finish, but I didn't do that one carry. It was it was really cool for me to hear, like, face standing, you know, and some of these pros, like, dude, you finished. Like, you earned the medal. You're not winning money. You didn't, you're not going to get on the podium to say you beat, you know, your other age group contenders. Like, you ran your race. And so it's kind of cool to, to uh, experience that, that camaraderie with some of, like, the elite pros, you know, like, dude, you did what you had to do. Like, you got through and, and you finished. Look how many people didn't finish. So that's my strongest memory, like, now I finish everything. Like, I i don't care how I'm going to do it. Like, I'll crawl my hands and knees. But I also was six months into, eight, maybe like eight months into racing at the time. So I had a lot to learn. Um, it's not hard to track and pack an extra piece of gear, which I <laughs> learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, on the, the primary podcast, we actually talked quite a bit about the impact of gear. Uh, last year, one of our friends... Um, truly learn the difference between some good base layers and some good looking base layers. Um, she ran Tahoe last year, 2019 Saturday, and then she was invited to run Sunday because uh, Saturday they had to close the course and because of the lightning strikes and they closed the course and, and she felt like she didn't finish the race and she happened to run into Joe and, and Joe's like, no, you're going to get back out on course. You're going to run. You know, it's elite today, but you, I'll let you out there. You're not going to get a, you know, you can't place or anything, but I want you to go finish the course your way. And she didn't have any gear or anything. So Spartan, you know, gave her some good looking gear that maybe wasn't the best in actual protection value, 
and she ended up hypothermic and and almost lost her battle because of that and uh and we did a few actually episodes about that and and she spoke with with joe quite a bit after that race about uh, racer safety at tahoe because of the the conditions that were out there and uh i was hoping to see this year that everybody gears up and is more prepared for it but uh, right now i'm just hoping to see that it even happens yeah i hear you it's rough i i've taken a step back now um from working with or for spartan um to run my gym to do the motivational speaking thing so i'm still really well um a part of the family like i got a lot of good friends in the company but i don't actually work for spartan anymore um it's ironic too like they had to take a break and everything but like two days before they had to take a break i was having some my dad was having some health issues and stuff and i was about to have the baby and i was like you know what before we even kick this year off hard like i don't want to waste anybody's time like i'm about to have a baby um you know my dad's having some issues he needs help getting to the doctor like you know, i'm gonna take some time off and they still told me like hey if we're in trouble if we need guys like i'm gonna keep your email is that cool like if we can pull you out to, to give us a hand you're a good worker and I felt pretty good about that, you know, that they still wanted to recognize that, that I was able to do the work and, and be a part of it. But my, what I was hitting out with that, too, was, was that um, I think there's been some, some sore feelings with people, um, you know, and, and they have to understand just the level of safety and risk, like you just said, going into these races. Like, you got 10,000 people. Like, there's so much that, that racers even – and that people don't understand has to go in behind the scenes, like that just bear with the, the people don't take it out on the people that are working for the company. Um, I promise you, like they want you on the course and they're trying, it's just a pain in the neck. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Like, you know, don't take it out on the guys there. They're, they're all kind of in limbo, just like you guys are waiting to hear. And, and some of these guys, that's their main income and now they're not working. So, you know, just to, just to toss it out there, like don't, don't take it out on the, the race, directors and people that are you know they're doing the best they can to to get you guys back on course yeah this this uh shutdown did afford one nice thing for us here at the podcast uh we've been trying to get hammond and garfield on for a couple years now and because of the shutdown we were finally able to get them on the show so one good thing came out of it for us (laughs) did that did that one already air yeah um it was right at the end of march uh hammond came on to discuss the hammond challenge with us right before he kicked it off oh oh yeah yeah okay that's right i remember i remember seeing some of it yeah yeah i was gonna say like if you if you can't get them like i'll bug i'll bug them and see if i can help but if you guys got them that's rad yeah and like i said it took years uh pretty mike he was once every couple of weeks you know sending hammond another message hey you ready yet you ready yet and it's always, you know, oh, I've got this going, I got that going. He's just a he's a very busy guy. But uh mm-hmm. but yeah, I was glad we finally got him on. And we do have a handful of our friends down in the southeast that are going and running uh the Jacksonville June thirteenth and and they're gonna check in with us after the race and kind of recap the difference in a post COVID world running Spartan. You know, you just sparked something in my head that I didn't think about real quick. Um I'm curious to see how that race goes and what happens, and I'd love to hear about it too. But the uh, the guy that owns that venue, WW Motocross Park, his name is Junior. When I was there working that race in early 18, no, it would have been last year, 19, um, so a year ago, um, I ended up bumping into him and I ended up telling him some about my story and about like my sobriety and recovery and stuff too. And, and he's in recovery. He's got a uh, he's got like 16 years, I think, or somewhere it's up there it's like 14 or 16 and i ended up sharing you know some of my story with them and stuff and we still talk regularly um 
just another, you know, person that I met on my journey working for Spartan and, and doing obstacle course races, which is what we're talking about. And uh, he introduced me to another guy who's real into recovery, who runs um, like a recovery center, a long-term center for these people that are, you know, to help people get clean. And he takes them out. Um, his name is Tattooed Preacher, which is kind of cool because he heard my name. And he goes, dude, I'm called Tattooed Preacher, and you're Tatted Ninja. Like, this is perfect. And uh, he takes guys, and he makes them work, gives them jobs, keeps them for like a year, and then he makes them ride motocross. So he puts them he puts them on dirt bikes and takes them down to WW Motocross Ranch and stays down there for like two weeks at a time, which is where the, the event's at. And they work around there and help Junior out, and then they learn to race too. So it just goes to show like everywhere you look, there's recovery. So I guess what I want to tell people, you know, that might be listening to this is like, don't look so far that you miss what's right in front of you. Like there's people that are willing to help all over everywhere, but you have to open your mouth to say that if you're just looking and bobbing your head around and breaking your neck left and right, they're not going to know what you're doing. They're not going to know that you're asking for help, you know, speak up. It's traveling as much as I did with Spartan. A lot of the guys drink, they have fun, they go out, you know, and I would go out. I would just drive the, the rental car that we have. And I just tell them, Hey, I'm leaving at nine. Do you want to ride with me? I'm leaving at nine because they know I didn't drink, but they respected it. They knew I would want to leave early before it started getting loose and loud, and they respected it. So I would take the keys because then I had an exit strategy, and I could make sure that I, you know, I had a plan to get out of a situation if I needed to be in one. Like if we went to, you know, whatever, Ruby Tuesdays, and was buy one, get one drink night, but appetizer would have price. I'd go any way I'd eat, and then I'd just leave at 9, leave at 9. And, uh, you know, there's meetings everywhere, 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 everywhere. There's recovery everywhere. You just have to ask. Some people have been doing recovery so long that they don't blast it on their chest like I do. Like, I literally have living clean tattooed, like, huge on the side of my head. I'm wearing a shirt right now that says Sober AF. Um, one of my buddies that rides motocross, it's his clothing line. I blast it everywhere because I want people to see, like, it can be fun. It can be energetic. It can be upbeat. Like, recovery doesn't have an image. It doesn't have a mold. It doesn't have a style. Like, just like also course racing, it's acceptable of everybody, all shapes and sizes, like, come on out, like, we're here to boogie, that's, I love it. Yeah, that, that is quite awesome, um, you know, a lot of times when I'm reading late at night or something, I'll, I'll come across uh, stories of professional athletes or rock stars or MMA people that, you know, how recovery's changed their life and, and in a lot of cases created a much longer life for them, and so it's great that so many people can be out there and just talk openly about it. When I first first got sober, man, I was quiet and didn't want to talk about it. And then probably after a year, it was like, all right, I'm cool with this. Let's help some other people and let's talk about it. Yeah, now you're you know, now you're helping hundreds or thousands of people probably with, with what you're doing here and just amazing, amazing stuff. Yep. Anybody that I can reach that wants my help, I'll uh gladly give it to them twenty four hours a day. Um so the show usually runs about an hour. Um, we're kind of there. Is there anything that that you wanted to kind of put out there, some closing thoughts? Um, yeah, you know, just don't give up. Don't quit. Anything that you guys want. So this is this is one of the things that I tell people is I can't get through the obstacle. I can't, can't do this. I can't do that. Apply your addiction to that obstacle. If you knew there was a buzz on the other end and you were sober, during your addiction, you would have find a, a, a way or a means to get through that, to get to that buzz. 
you're living so much easier and healthier now. Like, make it happen. Push yourself. Figure it out. But do it the healthy way. And then Tatted Ninja Fit, T-A-T-T-E-D-N-I-N-J-A-F-I-T, Tatted Ninja Fit at gmail.com. Anybody, absolutely anybody that hears this, that wants to reach out, that needs help, like, please feel free to reach out. Let me know if I can help you, how I can help you. Um, I'll be happy to get on the phone with you, share stories, give you some material that's helped me, whatever it is, you know, please feel free to get a hold of me. Everybody, we're all human. We're all equal. We're all capable of helping one another. And I'd love to be a part of everybody's journey that I, that I absolutely possibly can. Awesome. Thank you, Terry. Um, People will also find that in the liner notes for the show. I'll make sure and include that contact information. Plus, as always, they can always reach out to myself or you on Facebook and any of the Sober Spartans in the Sober Spartans Facebook group. We're all here for you. You guys are not alone out there. You're the man. Thanks for listening to Sober Spartans on the BeastNet podcast. Please remember to be respectful of the guests on the show and their level of anonymity. Episodes of Sober Spartans will air the last Sunday of the month and are open to the public to listen to. If you hear this and feel like you need help, don't be afraid to reach out. Find us on Facebook at Sober Spartans or email me at beastnetpodcast at gmail.com. We're here for you.